Hey, and welcome to Product Journeys. I'm Frank Gleisner. And I'm Lachlan Robertson. We're both product managers stumbling our way through our product journeys. We're out to meet amazing product people and learn a bit about their skills and experiences. And today it's my pleasure to introduce to you Sarah Cunliffe. Sarah's first experience of a retro was at 3am in a war zone when a UK Special Forces unit returned from an operation aimed at closing down a bomb network. And casually from there, she stumbled her way into product management and has remained passionate about helping teams work together better and champions product ops wherever she goes. Her two girls are a constant reminder to stay curious, keep asking why, and remember, you are not your user. So, Sarah, welcome. It's really nice to have you, and it's been a long time coming. We're going to kick off with your product journey, so let us know how you've got to where you are today. Well, thanks, Fran. I'm really excited to talk to you my first podcast. I spent most of my early career, well, most of my career in the UK, and I guess a first career in the UK Ministry of Defence, where I was a policy specialist on military operations. I led a policy team in the headquarters of the Special Forces was my last role before I left. And I kind of had this weird realisation that there was this huge tension between the way the Special Forces work, which is super agile and very fast moving, but also constant learning and iterating from their mistakes, from the rigid civil service training I've been given. And there was this tension, I felt it in myself and in my body. And I don't think I really realized at the time that exactly what was going on, but I knew I needed to change careers. I don't want to be a civil servant. This is not for me. But I had absolutely no idea what to do. So I just took some time out and I went to live in the French Alps in Chamonix and, and I skied and I trail ran and I played ultimate frisbee. And then I sort of fell into product management, I suppose. I started working for local companies, helping them out, building their websites. And it just felt clunky and weird. There must be a better way to do this. And I literally had no idea that product management was a thing. And so I started looking into it and researching and chatting to people. It's quite a big expat community in Chamonix, people who are running startups and tech companies and sort of realized that there's this whole specialist field called product management. This is great. This is what I want to do. And so I decided that I would find a role back in London and a team with lots of experience with experienced product managers where I could learn from them and give this a go as my second career. And I think when I did it at the time, it felt quite a big leap to be shifting careers. But I think it's pretty common now that people come into product management as a second career or having done something else beforehand. And I think it brings a really diverse background to the role when people haven't simply worked in tech, they've worked in other things as well. I don't think I know anybody who's gone straight into product management, actually. Everybody comes in from a range of different backgrounds, which is maybe the beauty of it, the diversity. Yeah, totally. You, you mentioned there at the start, like you, you're working in military and I guess the juxtaposition between perhaps say, the civil servant lifestyle, what was the, the type of policy that was very slow versus the fast moving on the ground nature of that? Yeah, I suppose it's the nature of we're talking about how does our policy in Iraq in terms of what are we doing on the ground connect to the bigger picture of where the UK government is trying to go and what our foreign policy is. I guess the way in which those structures are set up are very bureaucratic. There's a lot of good conversations happening across different government departments, but at the same time, there's not so much innovation. 
right? That it's very slow to be able to drive change. And I feel like the the thing that I saw as a contrast when I was leading this team in the special forces, and they and they've not done this before. They not put policy people in because they were scared we would slow down their operations, right? And I ended up in this interesting place where the special forces wanted me in there because they wanted me to help show the rest of government that what they were doing and why we should move faster. And government sort of wanted me in there because they wanted me to keep an eye on them and check they weren't doing stuff they didn't want them to be doing. But what I saw really was that the special forces are really excellent at becoming specialists and then having a group of different specialists that work together to solve a problem really quickly. And I guess when you're in a life and death situation, of course, you iterate. There are times when I've sat in a ops room and watched an operation happen in the middle of the night and the team come back in and they literally at three in the morning sit down and do a retro. Seeing this team do this retro and there's no hierarchy, right? It doesn't matter who you are. You're making changes on the go. That didn't work. That went really well. We need to do that differently. I missed you when you did that thing. Whatever it is that's happening, they were just having a really intense feedback session straight away to make sure that that went straight back into the lessons for how they did it next time. And it was just really eye-opening. And I thought, wow, I've not been taught that. And my body was just, I guess it just felt uncomfortable with it for a long time. But that uncomfortableness was what drove me to realize that the civil service rigid way of doing things had driven the creativity out of me. And what I really wanted to do was find a career where I could explore that creativity. Mm. I'm really interested in the specialist view because as a you know talking about product management everyone comes in from diverse backgrounds and I had a conversation yesterday with someone about the fact that people come in two years experience have no idea and are making really big decisions what's your view on the balance between specialists and where are specialists really important in software versus diversity and the background of, of willing to do anything I think it's the difference between the role as the product leader in bringing all those people together, right? And and having someone who's got that deep understanding of the nuances of either the regulation or the frameworks or something like that to give you advice and information at the right point in your journeys. So I think that the value of a product manager as a more generalist person is absolutely to be able to see across the whole picture. I certainly know and saw in some of my product roles where the specialists they've spent so much time they're so deep in their specialist areas that it's really hard for them to see a different way of doing things and we've got to come back to that core mantra as a product which is you're not your user they might be an absolute expert in accountancy but they might not be the person who's a small business who's trying to run the thing which is their expertise I don't know maybe they're a sewing business or a craft business that's where a total specialist in and on the side, they've got to do this accountancy because legally they have to do it. But they're not the specialists, right? And so that person will have such a different view on how to use software than the specialists. The specialists will make sure that they are absolutely complying with the law, that we've got all those guidelines in place to make sure that the user isn't getting stuck and into trouble. But I think the advantage of the product manager being a generalist is they just have that broader perspective and can pull on specialists throughout the whole phase of the product lifecycle. Nice. And so I'm hearing that every organization should really have those specialists and they should be pulled in by more generalist roles like a product manager. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Most of my roles have had a, a subject matter expert of some description. My view on my leadership approach would be to have those people right at the beginning and throughout the whole journey involved in the discovery work, the design, the testing, the learning, the research, and also then the metrics at the end on how we measure success. Because it's got to work for the user, but it's also got to make sure that it's compliant with whatever best practice and regulations are out there. The other thing that stood out to me that you talked about when you falling into your PM role, you mentioned the word clunky. So in Shamane, you were working in these roles that felt really clunky. What do you mean by clunky and what have you found in product management that's not clunky? I suppose... I was working without a framework and one of the roles I had, I was running the website for a airport transfer company. So they picked up people from the airport and brought them to the Chamonix Valley or to other people. And they had eight seater vans and they would bring individuals or groups with kit. And they picked up from your location, your hotel, or your apartment. So they had this logistical challenge of how to pick up in the right order with the right number of people, with the right vans, getting onto the right airplanes. So actually a really cool and interesting product challenge to have a system that would work that out for you. But of course, I didn't know anything about product management. They were building this backend system or this, I guess, what you would call an internal tool these days for their staff to use by literally telling the developers what they wanted. And the developers were in Australia and we were in France. And I was the facilitator around this. And the developers were frustrated because they were being told what to do. The staff weren't getting what they needed because they asked for something and the developers didn't really understand the need because they didn't have an understanding of the why because they weren't sitting there and seeing the pain points and they weren't understanding the jobs and to do and the problems they had. And so I guess I was just like, this is hard. There must be a better way of having these conversations to get both of you to understand each other's perspective. And that's where I discovered product management and realized that this idea that you spend much, much more time in discovery before you start building anything to make sure you're actually building the right thing that's going to solve the problem, reduces that clunkiness of, oh, I've built a thing, here it is. Oh, I've waited three weeks for it and it's not going to solve the thing we want. Ouch, that's expensive for everyone. I've never seen anyone over-invest in discovery in product management. I've seen people under-invest in discovery and absolutely regret it, but I've never ever seen anyone over-invest in discovery and think, oh, oh we spent too much time there. It, it doesn't happen, you know, so... I'm interested to, to probe into that a little more. One of the things that some teams that I've worked with in the past have said, it feels like we're spending a lot of time doing discovery and not actually building things. Do people spend too much time to hypothesize as opposed to actually making things to actively test through discovery? I think there's definitely a balance, right? Coming back to that conversation we had just before we started about making mistakes and learning from mistakes and iterating on it. I think the key thing for product managers is to get used to being comfortable with just enough. The, the idea that we do a big, long discovery and we know everything and then we go for it, it doesn't, doesn't work either. There's a real balance to be struck. But I do think that we can say we have just enough evidence to make a decision and we're going to go for it, but we're going to keep monitoring and watching it early. And I think the thing I've really learned, and especially the last year through a bit of self-reflection and a bit of time out is, is to start to be curious about when things go wrong. So instead of personally taking it personally, criticizing myself, thinking, God, you make a mistake. It's like say, oh, that didn't work out. I wonder why that didn't work out. And the more you can ask those sorts of questions early, I think the more that you can make decisions based on the minimum amount of discovery work. And then you can quickly stop yourself 
if you're going through a piece of work and it's not right for whatever reasons. Yeah. How do you know what just enough is? And how have you got to the place that you are to allow yourself to be able to fail? And to because, as you say, I think a lot of people don't allow themselves to do that. So, what let you just let go and be like, okay, I'm gonna self reflect? (laughs) (laughs) So, your first question was, how do you know what just enough is? One of your questions was, what do you think a key skill is for a new PM? And I and I think my answer to that is curiosity, which leads to discovery. So the more curious you can be, the more you will discover in a lowercase discovery, the ideas, the problems, the understanding of the vision of the board and where that company's trying to go to, the understanding of the technical challenges. I'd say that any new product manager needs to focus on asking good questions. The more you ask good questions, the, the more that you can figure out what just enough is, because ultimately it's got to be instinct too. But if you can work out what's the right question, what's the most important question to ask right now? What do we absolutely need to decide now? And what can be left for later? The process of just doing that a lot means ultimately you end up, and and if you can trust your instincts, you can say, I think this is good enough. And I've got some evidence, I've got enough evidence to be able to persuade people to just to, to go. And I think I'm a big fan of doing product peer reviews with other product managers in the team. So. I've set up in a couple of places this idea where designers do it a lot. They do design crits, right? And they get each other's design in. And I think that product managers can do the same. They can be, hey, I've been working on this discovery. I've got this stuff. I've been asking these questions. This is where I've got to, or we're about to go. Anyone got any feedback? Anyone think we're missing anything? And that openness to share work early and to get feedback really stops you from jumping head first, but also gives you that confirmation that your instinct is right. That's an awesome idea. I don't think I've heard of that. I love it. I don't know why products doesn't do that more. So very cool. And so then do you know how you've got to the point where you're able to self-reflect or what, what brought that about, stepping back and allowing yourself to fail? I think I'm learning. I think it's work in progress for me too. I am absolutely the kind of person who will be like, right, I want to make sure I've got all the answers all the time to all the things. And I think I'm constantly checking myself. Are you sure... Do you really need to know any more information? Can we trust our instinct and go on this? I think it's definitely a work in progress. And I think it is for a lot of people. But certainly for me, it's something that I'm constantly just checking myself on. (laughs) Yeah, cool. And stepping into a new year, it's good to have a focus like that to to set as your high-level goal. I like it. Looping back to your product journey, you mentioned in product, you've bounced around to a few different places and interested in any key highlights from those or any achievements or or lessons that you've had from those different positions lessons i think probably my personal lesson for me on my own product journey would be to figure out what do you what do i need from my next product role and focus on finding an organization that can offer that often there's a list of things and some of them are related to how you want to enhance your career or maybe you've done a career framework wheel and you're like oh I want to work on these particular skills but sometimes it's wider and more holistic sometimes there's something more value aligned or I need somewhere that's going to be flexible to support my family I said and and I think my major lesson is make sure you interview the company for these things I've got this right a few times and I've got it wrong quite a few times too and for example when I first moved into product 
when I moved back from London, back to London from Chamonix, I knew that I needed a well-structured product team. I needed to find people that knew what they were doing in product to learn from. I got this one right. I went to a company called House Trip and they were an early Airbnb competitor. And they were a team of four product managers, head of engineering and a CPO who was ex-Twitter and ex-The Guardian. And I learned insane amounts there. And I was also allowed to really, really fail. I designed this internal tool for the customer service team. I didn't have a designer. I mean, it was overspecced. It took way too long. It was a real major mistake learning and major lesson learning too. And then was able to work in a fast way on the front end to increase our conversion journeys and do loads of A-B testing and loads of data. And as a new product manager, to be able to work on all that stuff in my first year it was huge. I then moved on and got it totally wrong in my second job. I followed a product leader I was really excited about working for, but really I didn't ask enough questions in the interview phase about this company that was transitioning to Agile. And I found out when I turned up that they were super sales focused, that in a time that was pre remote working being a thing that the engineering team were in Poland, they didn't really speak any English, they weren't super up for calls. And it was just, oh, I didn't interview well enough for that. So my big lesson is around interviewing for what you want. And I think I'm still learning that it's okay to walk away from a role if it's not working for you. I think sometimes you talk to a company and you interview with them and they think they want the product skills that you've offered. And especially I think in this early stage startup phase, the reality can be that perhaps they're not far along enough in their product journey for the, to work that way. So I think I'm learning that it's not personal. It's simply a clash that you didn't, neither you nor the company identified in that interview stage, and that that's okay. Yeah, you're totally right. The interviewing process is as much about them getting to know you as it is you getting to know the company. So that, that makes sense. You mentioned at the start of that, knowing where you are in your product journey, what things you might be after and what skills or next steps you're looking for. How have you gotten a handle on that across your time? Because that been something you've just worked to understand yourself, what your next steps in product management are? Have you had mentors or is there some magical book somewhere that you read? <laughs> I've had some good managers who've helped me understand where my skill sets are and what I've been working on. I've also done a fair bit of self-reflection. There's quite a nice wheel which talks about the four quadrants, like a spider diagram, I guess. You find I think when you work through the four quadrants that you know some of those things you'll be a practitioner in and some of those you'll be more of an expert and some of them you'll be learning and you could draw this zigzag spider web around it and that can really help you both understand where your strengths are but also where you enjoy working and I think it is impossible to be excellent at everything as a product manager because there's too many things going on some people really like being in that delivery aspect some people really like being in the voice of the customer area some people are really into the business objectives and the financials and stuff and I think understanding both where your skill set is but also where you enjoy spending your time helps you to choose a company that not only can help you grow in some of those areas you want to grow in but also has complementary skills in the areas that perhaps are not your favorite or might not be your specialism. It's really nice. I've spent my last couple of days <laughs> doing a little bit of self-reflection and working through what do I enjoy doing and where do I see that I need to grow. In product in particular, are there things you think that are actually fundamental to work on? Are there particular things you think, actually, if you're not very good at it, you need to be good at it? You need to have a baseline at this thing. Type of, yeah. I think if you took the whole skill set, then having a very basic skill in it, you know, just an understanding and comprehension of everything, right? 
the thing I think that's probably the most fundamental to being a successful product manager is to really have a grasp on the customer, the user of your product, to really understand the pain points, the problems or the jobs that they're trying to do, why they're trying to do them, what the context of those jobs are. And I think that's the really foundational bit. I think without that as a product manager, it's going to be really tricky to find a solution to whatever problem or space that you're working in that is going to work for them. And fundamentally, if it's technically feasible and if it's commercially viable and if it aligns to the company, but it doesn't work for the user, your product's not going to be successful. Nice. I like that. And have you found anything in particular that's worked really well to be able to get that understanding of pain points? There's a lot of different ways to go about doing that. My go-to tool that I would take to every single role is journey mapping. Fran, you probably knew I was going to say that. The thing about journey mapping is it's a really visual way of breaking down a journey into something that you can start to see the individual steps on a on a map on a wall well, i started using it physically on a wall with post-it notes and like huge amounts of wall space to start to break down journeys and i think the thing about journey mapping is it's so versatile because you can take an existing journey a non-technical journey and just talk through all the different steps that a user does to do a thing and then you can use that to help you then identify the pain points at each stage, the emotions, the feelings. And that really can help you to prioritize, like, where are the big places to work within a really visual journey? So you can see the end-to-end journey, and you can also realize that if you work on maybe step three, it might have an impact on step four and five and six because you've mapped out the whole journey. And I think if you're going really deep on journey mapping and you've identified your pain points, you can use it to then map new journeys and you can use it to prioritise which things you work on first. You can use it to go deep on the technical things and figure out what are going to be the technical risks, which do you need to focus on first to de-risk? Or where do you have loads of research questions and you don't really understand it? And where do you need to focus your research in the beginning of discovery to make sure that you're really understanding the user before you then move on? So super powerful tool for all sorts of contexts. What I'm I'm hearing there is, is that something that I should look to do for every product that I work on, basically, as soon as I start working on it? Is that kind of the advice here? It's, it's probably what I would do. That's not necessarily to say that that's what you should do. I really like to do it because it doesn't just get me a view of the whole journey. It also gets the whole team in the same space if you do it together collaboratively. I found it really tricky moving from post-it notes to doing it on a e-board, Miro, or FigJam. But I'm now seeing so much benefit from it just being documented straight away. It can be quite tricky to get all those people in the room to think and really, really break things down into small steps. But I find it the investment in doing it up front at the beginning means that everybody in the room has the same understanding of the steps that are involved. And you can make sure through that process that when people don't have the same understanding that you really kind of bottom it out together. What do you do when you don't have access to the user or the customer? Or what would you do? (laughs) I think I'd say trust your instinct and try to find a way. You can always pull information from sales teams and ask sales teams to share with you their learnings and their conversations. But when it's secondhand and you're not hearing it exactly from the customer or the user, I think it's there's always some lost in translation. I wish we had a database of 
recordings. Yeah, there was there's some really neat tools coming up to the market that can manage some of those big research questions and keep your content organized. The user researcher I was working with at Kogo introduced one. I think it's a Kiwi-based company. I can't remember the name of it. It was really excellent. And it, it was quite a big investment up front in putting the structure together and managing all of your research questions and pulling information in there. But once it was set up, it really was, here's what we learned. Here's the scores against it. Here's the videos that you could start to drill deep. And, and the search tool was really powerful. So that if you're looking for some information, you could often find some recordings that were related to the thing you're looking for. That does sound very cool. I, I think for me, it's always the interesting balance of when you're doing user research or discovery, exploratory type of research of stumbling upon stuff and seeing what you might find versus the validatory. I have a hypothesis that I'm looking to validate and actually testing for that thing. And there's obviously... Yeah, different ways to approach that. And I, I think through your user journey, mapping, I was, I was thinking about the idea of personas as well. There are different journeys for different users and how do you yeah. map all those things out as well? Because there's, there's just a lot <laughs> in that space to, to unpack and it's always going to be a constantly evolving thing, right? Yeah. I'm thinking let's do to the accomplishment, what's been <laughs> a big achievement for you in, in your career to date. I suppose... Rather than an accomplishment, I've probably got something I'm most proud of. Maybe they're the same. I'm not sure. When I was in the UK, I went and joined the UK Government Digital Service, which launched just over 10 years ago. And it was the idea that government services are not easily accessible for everyone. To renew your passport or to renew your driving license is super epic. And if you're old or you don't ha have access to a computer or if you're hard of hearing or you know, all sorts of different situations. How do we bring those services into a much more simpler, repeatable, scalable way? How do we put some of them online to make them easier? And I went and joined a team working on some of those services, two or three jobs into my product career. And I joined a team that was trying to help small businesses access contracts in government. Because what was happening was basically the top four big companies could throw all their bid teams behind contracts to do digital work for government. And they'd have hundreds of pages of documents and could totally afford to do that and would win all those wonderful contracts in government. But actually, there's tons of really amazing small businesses out there. And none of them were getting a look in because they just simply couldn't afford to bid. The bid process cost too much money. And so the products that I was responsible for launching was a totally new way of thinking about the whole service. So cutting out the unnecessary forms. We rewrote all the legal documents in plain English which was a real first. The old school contracting agency, well, there's no way you can do this. You can't change those words. Well, they mean the same thing as this in English. And the lawyers were, so we got these amazing, super supportive plain English lawyers. And we cut down all the legal documents so that small businesses wouldn't have to hire a lawyer to read them. And we reduced the application process from 100 pages down to quick forms and just totally transformed the way that the government interacted with its suppliers. And we launched this MVP, which was really basic. I mean, it was, you know, I'm a big fan of minimum lovable products where actually you can really enjoy the experience rather than the minimum viable products. But it was just the minimum amount online and the rest of the service remained offline and a bit clunky, but so that we could get it live, get people using it, get feedback on what worked and didn't work. It's just transformed the lives of so many small businesses in the UK. It's still running. And it was the first time I've worked with a truly, truly cross-functional team of researchers, designers, subject matter experts, lawyers, 
content writers, marketing experts to really pull together and deliver this this big change. So yeah, it was really cool. That's awesome. And how did you know that it was a success? We got a lot of feedback. And I think the key thing was that, that when we looked at the size of the companies that were applying for government work, the balance had shifted. The number of small businesses that were applying for government work where there were one to 10 people companies rather than being 100 plus companies. You could see that number go up and that was huge because there are tons of amazing companies out there that could supply work to government. It doesn't need to all go to the same 10 suppliers. That's great. Just thinking about the balance of competition as well, more companies competing for more stuff, which in yeah. turn hopefully means better exactly. products are delivered rather than just being the, the big monoliths that <laughs> struggle through and then end up doing additional charges for things that were outside of the whatever because that's just the way they operate. And I totally agree. Those smaller businesses are much more likely to be working in a lowercase agile way than in a great big project waterfall kind of deadline focus way. And, and sure, we need the deadlines, we need things to be delivered, but at the same time, some flex is, is important. Yeah, very cool. Last question before we move across to the, the rapid fire one. In your job today, imagining you're at a, a social event, perhaps it was over Christmas, explaining to some friends or family, how do you describe what you do in your role to the average person? This is literally the hardest question of all time, right? It's always hard to explain what you do as a product manager. I, I wonder if part of the problem is the title, right? You manage products. Well, that's not really what I do, actually, is it? (laughs) (laughs) I'd say that a product manager spends their time discovering problems and opportunities within the space for which the company works. You join any company who's got vision and goals to work in a certain area. And and my job is to, to work out what the opportunities are for us to do as a company and work out which problems should we solve and how will they take us towards our goal. I guess once you've figured out which of those you want to work on, the idea is to try and find a usually software-related solution to them, but not always, with a team of experts, those researchers, those designers, engineers, other subject matters. The problem you've got is that you then kind of have to work out if the ideas, the solutions that you come up with are any good. What does good mean? It sort of means, does it solve the problem for the user? Is it technically feasible, affordable? Does it help take you towards the company's goals? And that intersection of those three things is really the sweet spot where the product manager is trying to work. And as you go along and try out some of these and test them early, you throw a lot of them in the bin. And so this is a very long-winded answer to what does a product manager do, but I I don't think it's straightforward to explain it because actually in any given job, you're working in slightly different areas of those intersecting circles to try and find the sweet spot. It absolutely is the hardest question. And I think it goes back to the diversity as well. There's so, so much diversity. So how do you bring that together and sync it up? All right, we'll move on to rapid fire, which I really enjoy. <laughs> so usually, yeah, one word, one sentence answer. Are you reading a book or an article that you'd like to recommend or in the past have read? I think given our conversations, I have to recommend Jeff Patton's user story mapping book which was the first thing I read on journey mapping. There you go, easy. I'll confess, I haven't read the whole book, but I've been to one of his training sessions, which uh, would very much recommend. Podcasts, do you listen to them? Do you have one that you'd recommend for people? I'm going to recommend Glennon Doyle's We Can Do Hard Things. 
And I think you recommended that to me and I love it. It's great. There was a really good one I think I listened to on Liz Gilbert, which was just, just such a great episode. And it's that time of year. What are you most grateful for? My little family, Matt and my two daughters. I'm really grateful because I think they every day show me how to be better, especially with kids. You, If you really listen to them, you just see how their instinct flows and how they question the world. And it's just curious by nature. It's a great inspiration. Yeah, awesome. Last question. Do you have any key takeaways or calls to action that you'd like to share? We've touched on this already, but I think my main takeaway for people in product would be to say that if you want to be a good product leader, get comfortable with just enough. Have the courage to make those decisions early, even when it feels really uncomfortable and really scary. Try to be curious rather than critical when things don't go right, both to yourself, because that's really important, but also with other people. Trust that people are doing their best with the information they have at hand. I once read that on average, when you're working and ideating that you need to work through six new ideas before you find one that will stick. So doing this in discovery before you've written any code is really, really important. Nice. Thank you so much. The just enough is a really, really good one as well. I think I struggle a lot with that. And I go with the 80-20 rule, which I think is similar. 80% is good enough. It's never going to be perfect. So just get it out there and get people talking about it and sharing ideas. So really nice things thanks thank you sir